0: Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40 minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by a triple threat a geologist, an astronaut, and oceanographer, Kathy Sullivan, where I ask her, What's it like to live on the edge? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited for this week's episode because we have a scientific triple threat. We have Kathy Sullivan. You are an oceanographer. You're a geologist. You're an astronaut. And also, if people don't know, you are the first person that ever has completed a spacewalk and gone to the deepest part of the ocean known to man. So the question for today is, what is it like to live on the edge? Kathy Sullivan, welcome.
1: Hey, Jonathan, great to be with you. Um, you are
0: an uh just an icon in those in the three scientific fields that I just said. I mean, you are you just have such an incredible story career. I've spent the last few days uh, watching some videos of you on doing spacewalks, seeing you. I, I mean, I just have the chills. Uh. It, it, It's just so cool.
1: It's been a grand fun adventure, that's for sure.
0: I mean, I will say. So I kind of wanted to think about today's uh, interview in in kind of three chunks. And I wanted to kind of cover space in the first bit and then more of the ocean journey in the second bit. And then kind of zoom out and talk more about science a little bit more generally in the end. But it's interesting because you, from what I understand, you got your start – in oceanography and then got recruited into NASA, right?
1: Yeah, I was, uh, I was in grad school working on a PhD in basically deep sea floor geology when NASA started putting the advertisements out for the space shuttle program. So the uh, just really fortuitous timing.
0: So you get into NASA and you you realize that you are gonna go to space. What is that conversation and process like?
1: Uh, it's a very obscure and mysterious process, actually. So 35 of us joined NASA at the same time in the group of 70, 1978. I think there were about a, a dozen and a half astronauts who have been around since Apollo or earlier. So they were, you know, the long timers. We joined them. And uh, who got tapped for what flight and why was, I mean, maybe somebody knew, but I've never talked to anyone who knew that. You could... You knew which big boss boss probably had the final say or made the, the main recommendation, um, but so you could kind of guesstimate the head of the astronaut office. The chief astronaut clearly makes an input. Uh, the boss above that, head of flight crew operations, clearly has a, a decision factor. Maybe there's some back and forth with NASA headquarters. You know, here's what we're thinking. Uh, but if what I just said bears any resemblance to what actually happened or not, I don't. I don't actually know. So you go about your business. You're assigned different technical support roles. Uh, I always liken this to starting in the mailroom of a big company. You start doing you start doing the building block work the the stuff that makes a space flight happen that you never see in public that never gets any press or any you know fanfare. But it's the essential engineering and planning and testing and preparing. There's there's scads of that that lead up to every single space flight and first you become a member of several of those teams and you learn your way you learn how a space flight comes together you learn how the bits and pieces work by being in the trenches and doing them and then at some point you'll get a phone call or a summons to go over to the big boss's office it's often how it happened and he would just inform you you're going to be on this flight uh, in that role you go, oh, okay you know.
0: So do you, I don't, this is going to prepare yourself because this is going to be an interesting question to lead into the ultimate point. But have you seen the Netflix documentary Cheer? I have not. Okay. Well, it's about this cheer squad in Texas. And there's this whole thing about like, you want to make Matt because that's the team that gets to actually like go to the big national competition. And then like the team that doesn't make Matt, like doesn't get to compete. So it kind of makes me think of like, just because you get enrolled in NASA, does that necessarily mean that you're going to get to go to space?
1: Uh, the basic answer is yes. I mean, NASA does not recruit 100 people planning to winnow down to 30. Uh, right. they, they work harder on the front end to be very careful in the selection. So they, NASA selects with the intent to fly you. Might something happen along the way that takes you out of play? Yes. But it's not, it's not like the football squad or cheerleading tryouts where there's 100 of you trying out and 10 of you are going to get to go. Unless something very odd happens, you've been chosen because it's clear and they're confident you've got what it takes, you can fly, you'll be successful, and you, know, you could be in a car accident or have a physical problem that would take you out of contention. Uh, but it's not NASA's plan to winnow you out.
0: Okay, and then I have one more little baby question along these lines. So do you think, could you conjecture that maybe like while you all are learning things and like you're training together, do you think that like your boss and the boss's boss would be like, you know, I think Kathy and -and so-and-so would work well together because they're both, you know, like this. And maybe these two wouldn't be great on the same flight because of this and that. Or do you think because there's so much reason, like there's so much winnowing like on the front end that they probably wouldn't even make it to those 78 people if you couldn't all work together?
1: Uh. Yeah, I think there's, in this selection process, there's definitely a judgment that you are know, the kind of character and personality. Uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a blend of independence and confidence and collaboration or team capability. You need a, a chemistry like that. And clearly there's been some assessment of that in the selection process. Um, definitely every, you know, observation is happening all the time. So how did you do on this technical assignment? Where did you seem to fit technically? Uh, did, did you succeed? They're they're watching you develop and and do the work. And that's part of uh, the ongoing assessment, uh, I'm sure, of everybody. In the shuttle era, shuttle flights were fairly short. You know, maximum at the in the latter stage of the program, maybe three weeks max. But in the early days when I was there, you know, a ten day mission was a really long mission. And so I think your point about who gets along, who really gets along well with someone else. I suspect was a a very minor factor. Uh, You had a lot of things to do on a flight, let's say 10 experiments or lots of satellites to deploy. And so it was more I need this skill set and that one and that one. So that's you three people. And it's a 10-day sprint. And there's a long list of things that have to get done and get done properly. And I sort of don't care if you guys really love each other. Go get it done. And if you come back and you've become you have become best friends and you socialize forever, that's great. And if you come back and you don't talk to each other for, I don't really care, you know, go get it done. And if you want to go fly another time, it would be really wise of you to not let little silly personal stuff uh, get in the way of getting the mission done properly. So you guys, you're grownups, sort this out amongst yourselves, but get it done. It, nowadays, with the space station crews, there's you can't expect people to just blast through minor personality mismatches for six months or nine months. So there is more consideration for that. There's more evaluation of those factors in selection. And there's more consideration of that as you're putting the crew together. And then there's also more the structure of the working day is uh, and of your life aboard is set up to recognize everybody's going to need some downtime. Everyone's going to need a little bit of on their own chill time. So there's there's room and time in, in the way the mission is run to be sure that the humans can stay human and have those relief valves.
0: But that wasn't really the case when the missions were like 10 days. Like that more became the case once they became much longer.
1: That's right. Because because the, the Skylab experience, there, there was earlier experience, submarine crews, Antarctic crews. You can look at analogs to long Long durations, missions with small groups of people in confinement, uh, submarines, Antarctic bases, spacecraft. And so there's some common lessons and insights about how people work in those environments that NASA has been very uh, careful to study. and, And now they're providing some of the data into that field.
0: What scientifically changed about the shuttles? So there's like the shuttle era. And then is there like, what's the next era?
1: Um. So I would break it down this way. There was the, the space shuttle era when that's, that's all you had, the shuttle and its cargo bay. Uh, and NASA was still learning, you know, it was a brand new spacecraft. So you get better and better and you sharpen your pencil and learn how to do more with it as you get more experience with it. So the first flights were two, three, four days by the latter part of what I would call the sh- pure shuttle era. They were up to 10 and maybe 12 days. That was kind of learning how to stretch all the consumables. You, you could then say the next era was the space station assembly era, and that was still using the space shuttle, but a lot of the flights were, were station assembly flights, go up with some new module, lift it up with the robot arm, attach it to the station, do some number of spacewalks to connect all the fine wires and plumbing. Uh, and then the shuttle was retired, in you know, 11 years ago. And so now we've been in the space station era where launch and landing still have to be dealt with, but you've got two, two to four people who really are oriented towards living and working, doing engineering and science aboard the space station for typically six months at a time.
0: So how big is the space station up there? Is there like more than one?
1: Uh, there's right now just the, the International Space Station. Just Canada and Japan and the United States and, and Russia and the European Space Agency and, and other nations time sharing it, if you will. Uh, and how how big is it? It's you know it's got it's got a wingspan. These big girders that go out to the left and the right to hold the big solar arrays and radiators. Those are those are longer than a football field from wingtip to wingtip. Uh, but that's, that's just or all together all all together longer than a football field. Um, that's just all open structure out in the vacuum of space. Nobody lives in that. The parts, the modules in the center where where the astronauts live and work, um, they've got about the same uh, pressurized volume as the inside of a seven forty seven or a you know a, a, a kind of typical size four bedroom house. Uh, probably not a McMansion kind of house. So it's it's a fair amount of square footage.
0: But is the house like stretched out like a tube or is it like like up in space like is it like is it like it's not like the shape of a house is it more of like it, the no, shape of like a, it's, it's more like a 747 shape
1: It's it's not at all the shape of an actual house it's a it's a it's a living and working area that's been assembled by connecting cylindrical building blocks So so think of a cylinder usually 50ish or so feet long uh, and 15 ish feet out on the diameter on the outside. And then you connect them end to end and you make this, um, it's kind of a racetrack. So if you, you they, they connect in, in almost sort of a, a racetrack together.
0: Ooh, that's interesting to think about. So you join NASA in the first class that had Whitman in the ranks, which is incredible, which is in, that's in 1978.
1: 1978. Yeah. The the class, the 35 people of our class included six women and also the first people of color and minorities, three African-Americans and an Asian-American.
0: Which is incredible. But when you also think about like 1978, like that's literally only nine years before I was born. Like, so I think just it's a quick, important reminder that, like, when you think about, like, Jim Crow and, like, all of these things, like, they ended, like, in 1964, it doesn't affect people now. Like, actually, like, the effects of that leached into science. It leached into, like, so many different spaces that we – thank you for pointing that out. And I think that's incredible. But so 1978, you join. And then you make your first walk in 1984, which was that on your first flight, the first base walk that
1: you went on? It, it, it was,
0: so yeah, what
1: was that great. like? Well, it was, you couldn't get a better first flight assignment. It, for, the, for the time, it was a relatively long mission, eight days. Uh, and the, the orbit we were going to fly in was tilted 57 degrees to the equator, which meant we would see a lot of the Earth underneath us. Uh, most shuttle flights stayed much closer to the equator. You would not see as much of North America or of, uh, Asia, for example.
0: I need you to explain that to me one more time. I'm sorry. I don't, ah. you just used a degree and stuff. So the Okay. Earth-
1: so, sake of the, the Earth is a, a close to a sphere. Mm-hmm. The equator through the middle of it, uh, and it, you when you when you plan a space mission, one thing you decide is. Uh, it's called the inclination. Where do I want the spacecraft to fly? Right, like right over top of the equator? That's called geostationary. Then you, you do the mathematics and you can put the spacecraft there. Uh, for the shuttle, you usually just launched straight due east from the launch site in Florida. Uh, and that that sits at a latitude of 28 and a half degrees, uh, and But you're letting the Earth help you launch, right? The, the Earth is rotating that way, and you're letting the Earth help you launch. do ah. so due, due, due east means you get more energy because the Earth is helping you a lot. But what that results in, if you look at a map of what part of the Earth goes underneath your spacecraft while you're flying in that orbit, it'll be a little band between 28 and a half degrees north and 28 and a half degrees south because your orbit is – Tilted that much to the equator. Right. For some flights, like the, my first mission, big objective, all the big objectives were Earth science oriented, geology and oceanography. So the scientists needed to see more of the Earth. So we sacrificed some of that energy boost instead of launching due east. You know, we steered a little more to the north. And if you plot, so our our orbit was not in the equator, and it was not like. The launch site. It was like that. And as as we went around the Earth and the Earth spins underneath us, we could see we were over top of everything, all the land and all of the planet between fifty seven degrees north and fifty seven degrees south. So you know, get a get your world atlas out sometime and find those two lines of latitude. And over the course of our eight days, we had hundreds of orbits to see all of those parts of the world.
0: That's incredible. So you had a number of orbits.
1: So how many times did you go all the way around? Um, I, I'd have to go look at the stats for this. It was uh, I've I've done a total of three hundred and fifty laps around the planet, um, and that was that was probably one hundred and forty-two or something like that.
0: Oh my god! So now, when you got assigned to this mission, did you know you were going to have to do a spacewalk, or was it more like gravity situation when you got up there? They were like. Kathy, this thing came undone, honey. You're gonna have to. Well, I'm sure they wouldn't say honey, but did they? Were they like you're gonna have to go fix this thing?
1: <laughs> yeah, you do, you don't hear honey very much on air to ground, right? Um, I just realized. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, ours ours was a planned spacewalk. Uh, we were we were going to demonstrate some specialized tools that had been built that would let you refuel a satellite on orbit, which is still not done to this day. So you you put fuel in a satellite and you. You seal that fuel tank every which way from Sunday because you mainly don't want to lose any of the fuel because of leakage. right and the tools the tools that we designed basically said, but wait, I changed my mind. So I want to go up to one of those satellites that we sealed every which way from Sunday and I want to have tools that let me undo all of that and put a fuel line in and refill it. The trick is we're not talking gasoline like at your local gas station. we're talking, really nasty, highly explosive and very toxic stuff. So I want you to get all those caps and seals off and put that fuel line in. But I want there to always be two physical barriers between you and that fuel while you're doing that. So wait, I'm going to get a fuel line in there, even though there's always two barriers. I mean, it sounds like it's going to take a magic trick to do that. Uh, but it, all it took was the magic of very clever engineering uh, to come up with a set of tools that would let us do that. So that, so we knew we were going to do a spacewalk. It was planned. It had that purpose, and it was built into the schedule. We, we did have one little thing go wrong with um, the shuttle's primary communications antenna before we got to the spacewalk day. Uh, and so there was a little bit of, oh, by the way, while you're out there – uh Kathy go over to the other side of the shuttle and you know fix this thing for us. So
0: you okay okay okay. Okay. So you're out there. so so when you go out of this shuttle to fix something. What happens? And what are you wearing? Like do you have to wear so, like a special thing to leave? Oh yeah, I so guess then you got- would.
1: Yeah, so the, inside the space shuttle, uh, the environment is just like it is in the rooms where we're speaking. Same amount and composition of air, temperature dial, you can control the temperature. Outside, there's no air at all, uh, and you're exposed to the full radiation of the sun. So if, you, if you're out in sunlight, it's stark sunlight, no atmosphere scattering things around, uh, it'll start to heat you up like crazy. But but you're going around the Earth every hour and a half. So half oh. 45 minutes you're in the sunlight on the day daytime side of the Earth. The next 45 minutes you're flying over all the parts of the Earth where it's currently night. You're in the Earth's shadow. So you're always going like every 45 minutes from pizza oven hot to Antarctic cold and back again. So you can't survive outside the spacecraft unless you put on a space space suit. And, and the spacesuit is, it's a spaceship in its own right. It's just happens to be shaped like your body instead of like a capsule or an airplane. Um, and it's, uh, it's, you have a backpack on the back of it that has the same, the same pumps and fans and motors and oxygen and things in miniature that, that let the shuttle keep you alive. That's your life support backpack. So you're flying your own body shaped spaceship when you go out on a spacewalk. Um, you always like a mountaineer, you always hook onto something. So you're tethered in case you've made a mistake or slipped or, or bumped something, you won't come loose from the spacecraft. Uh, we call it a spacewalk, but in the, in the zero gravity environment around the space shuttle, you're not actually walking. You're, you're moving hand over hand. I mean, think of watch little kids in a playground when they're playing on the jungle gym. It's, it's like monkey, monkey bars kind of stuff to move around, but you know, fingertip forces are all it takes. The thing is you're bulky. You know, you, you know think sort of a sumo wrestler suit because the, the spacesuit is bulky. It makes you very bulky. And on Earth it weighs over well over 300 pounds. So you, get, you have to get used to moving, and, and it's a little bit of a skill. How much force do I need to use with my arm, for example, to move my, the mass of my body plus the mass of the spacesuit but stay smooth and stay controlled. You don't want to be you. You you don't, you don't want to be the Sandra Bullock spacewalker, uh, sort of. You. Know, I want to get around. into no.
0: I want to get into gravity. I'm really curious about gravity. We have to talk about it in a second. So keep telling me about your spacewalk. So, so you're in the 350 the the thing, and then what happens?
1: Yeah. So it's it's you. You don't just toss this on and hop out. It takes you about four hours. To get everything ready, and you need to spend a little time getting your body physiologically ready, uh, because the spacesuit contains pure oxygen. So all the nitrogen that we have in our body from normal breathing of normal air, you need to let some of that purge out, mm. uh, and that needs to go slow, or you'll get uh, you'll have what's called the bends. So mm. it takes about four hours. You're finally buttoned up in your suit and ready to go, and you open the hatch and you sort of swim out hook into your tether and start moving hand over hand to wherever you're going to do your work on the shuttle. Uh, A lot of these routes have been pre-planned and they're special handrails. Look at any spacewalk picture. Anytime you see a yellow bar, that's yellow means that's the handhold I put there specifically for a spacewalker to grab onto and use. So a lot of of pre-planning to be sure you can get to all the parts of the shuttle you would need to get to. Uh, and so I was I was doing this spacewalk with a crewmate named David Leesma. and so Dave and I got out and went to the little toolbox that was right by the airlock hatch, loaded up the gear we needed, and headed headed back to where this this model, this mockup of a real satellite was, and that's what we were going to. Um, I mean, it was complete exact replica of an actual real satellite's fueling system, uh, and that was our task. Go open. We sealed it up on the ground really well. Open it back up and refill the fuel tank with these special tools.
0: And you did that in space.
1: And we did that in space.
0: And that and okay, wait. So did but since you guys did that and it worked, did they just realize later that like because did you say that they haven't really done it since?
1: Yeah, it still really hasn't been done. It and it it's a set of factors. One thing was um, a lot of the satellite, a lot of the satellites that. It, might make the most economic sense to do that on are in orbits the space shuttle can't get to and couldn't get mm. to. Uh, and then another thing is it, it's business calculation. Let's say you own, let's say you own one of the big communication satellites. Um, that's in it is they will be in an orbit that the shuttle can't get to. But suppose you you migrated it down and took it back out. You, you calculate the cost of doing all of that and uh, the speed with which the technology advances, it tended to make better economic sense to just replace a satellite rather than refuel and extend its life. Uh, and then the shuttle itself turned out to not be anything like as economical or, or frequent to fly as the early rosy projections had suggested. So, you know, if the shuttle had turned out to be the, the super, super cheap and super efficient thing it was imagined to possibly be, maybe the story would have come out different
0: but it's still probably a really important skill because I was thinking about maybe like space debris. So it could be eventually that like, we really need to be refueling stuff because like you can't be creating, like those economics could shift.
1: The economics definitely can shift and the number of objects in orbit uh, continues to grow and become more and more of a concern. And so, you know, the refueling did not happen via shuttle in the space shuttle era, but you're exactly right. It's The idea is not gone, on-orbit repair and servicing, refueling. The idea is not gone, and the engineering knowledge gained through our work and others, you know, it stays in the toolkit. And there are now private sector companies uh, that are creating, designing and creating uh, repair satellites, Uh, you know, the the tow truck of space, for example, that could fly up to your Mm. communications satellite and, you know, maybe remove and replace something that's broken down or maybe re- refuel it or raise or lower its orbit, things like that. That's uh, that's maybe starting to come around.
0: So, like, so you're in, like, the, the shuttle, and then when you put on the spacewalk suit, don't you need to, like, go into, like, another module where, like, that back door closes and then, like, the hatch opens? Because if that back door didn't close, wouldn't everything, like, get sucked out or something? Or just like float yeah, out.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. If you're gonna, if you design a spacecraft, uh, it, knowing you want to do spacewalks, you build into it an airlock. And think of it like the vestibule or the you know the the outer foyer of a house. If you live anywhere that's got a serious winter, there's an outer front door, and then there's an inner front door. That's basically the same thing as an airlock. So you you put on the spacesuit. The inside door is open to the cabin. You get your spacesuit on, get in the airlock. You close the inside door, make sure everything's working on your suit. Then you start dumping the air out. You don't open the outside door all at once because there's a lot of air in there. It would be explosive. You open a smaller valve and you let the air bleed out. And when there's no air in the airlock, it's the equal to the outside, to in outer space. Then you open the outside door. And you got into the cargo bay. And when you want to come back in, it's three-verse. You come into the airlock. It's full of vacuum at that point. You close the outside door. You bleed some of the space shuttle's air back into the airlock so it fills up to the same pressure Uh, as the cabin. Uh, And then you can open the inside hatch and come back into your crewmates and have your dinner.
0: Now, then in your big 350-pound suit, like, where do the tools go? Because I would assume you need, like, this thing and that thing to do the job out there. So is there like a pouch or is there like a purse or something in there?
1: Yeah. pouches and purses are not really great because your hands are so bulky with the gloves. Mm. So what we, uh, what we had were two sockets on the front of the suit. Uh, and we created, created a little gizmo that kind of looked like a metal H and you would put, so think of the letter H, turn it on its side Mm -hmm. and Two prongs at the bottom of that would, would attach in the sockets on the suit. The oh. cross crossbar of the H lifted the, the other side of the H up to where you could reach it. And on that top part of the H, the bracket, or sockets and, and um, places you could attach the tethers for tools. So you would put your tools on this bracket that was mounted to the front of your spacesuit. That way you, you can see it. It's right in front of you. The You could... You could tilt it a bit away from the spacesuit if you needed to see something more clearly, or you could tuck it right up against the side of the spacesuit if you didn't want to be so bulky. But if you look at, uh, you know, take a look at a YouTube video of the space station spacewalks or even a still photo, you'll be amazed how much stuff is dangling off the spacewalkers. Just like you said, you're going on the space station, you might be going far, far away, so you're going to load up with lots of tools. And so you'll see... The spa- spacewalker's arms are. It almost looks like they're hugging it, a, a trash can. The whole space in front of them is full of tools and equipment all around the front of them. How many tools?
0: Like, did you have? Like, what's like the most tools that you can have on your belt at once?
1: Oh uh, boy, um, there's there's clever ways to stack and substack things so. Uh, when, when I did my spacewalk, the gadget I was talking about, the little workstation gadget, had four, four sockets that you could stick something into. But sometimes what you put in one of those sockets was a, a Velcro pouch that held five tools in its own. So a little uh-huh. caddy that carried five other tools. So if you put four tool caddies in there and if each of those caddies had five tools, you could have 20 tools. So it just depended on what you were trying to do. So now,
0: before you go up there, like, do they put you in a pool with like a mock space shuttle so that you can like practice the spacewalk like a million times on Earth?
1: That's exactly how you train for spacewalks, in very large water tanks. Um, you get in a, you get in a space suit. It's, it's a real spacesuit, but one that's been earmarked to only ever use in the pool. It's never going to fly in space, but it's the real deal. They take that big bulky backpack and the computer off because you don't need the electronics in the water, and they put a shape there. They want what they want you to get. You need to get used to how big and bulky you're going to be. So you've got the same shapes on your back and on the chest, but they're, they're those are fake. Um, and you get in the water tank, and scuba divers put slivers of lead weight around the suits so that you you're neutrally buoyant. If the scuba divers let you go. You're not going to sink, and you're not going to pop to the surface. You're just going to stay right there. Uh, and that's like being weightless, right? If you, stop, if you just stop moving, you will just stay right where you are. And then, yes, there's very faithful, good fidelity mock-ups, uh, in our case at the shuttle cargo bay, with, a, with an airlock hatch, with the handrails, sort of everything quite, all the, all the spacewalk stuff, very faithfully uh, replicated, and you go through the motions and you, you you discover bits that don't work. You discover, you know, you make a mistake. You learn a way to do something better. Um, you even start that way developing the tools. I mean, one of the things I think people don't appreciate very much, but really to me it was part of the joy of being an astronaut, is if you, you know, if you watch Dave and I do that spacewalk, you might have said, oh, these guys are just so disciplined. I mean, it's step one, step two, to follow the checklist. And, you know, how, how boring to just sort of go do a checklist all the time. But what that misses is we wrote the checklist. I mean, we started with blank sheets of paper and a group of engineers, and you basically sit down together and say, well, okay, so no one's ever done this before. How do you think we would do this? And you sort of sketch out, well, you know, we... I, we'd start in the airlock and you open the hatch and we tools, whatever tools. Okay. We need, we'd go there. Right. And then we, would Dave would go down this side. Kathy would go down this. Uh, and you, you sort of rough out that choreography and you get in the water tank and you try that rough choreography and you'll, you'll find little details. you didn't think about when you were just talking it through. And so you modify that plan. You make it more and more refined by doing and testing and trying and learning together. So when it comes to the space flight, I didn't feel like some some robot or some drone just you know, mechanically going through steps. I felt more like, I, I mean, I imagine being the composer of a symphony who now gets to conduct it on a grand stage. I wrote this. I imagined it. I wrote it. I refined it. I tweaked it. I worked it with all the musicians so we all know how to do this right now. We get to perform this on the grand stage. It's a crazy fun experience. It's
0: incredible to think about just in in the the instances where i watched it, it i was so nervous and didn't it all feel i mean i was like i felt like it was like such high stakes i did feel that you, you were very disciplined so i have a question about the practicing for it so as you're kind of going through these rough choreographies in the pool like cuz can't you get like the bends thing in the pool like in your space suit like don't they have to bring you up with care and like i mean if you're if you're down there practicing for like 2 hours they like the scuba people can't just come down there and like bring you up to the surface real quick. Like a lot of like time and effort goes into even the practicing, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And there are a lot of scuba divers in the tank with you. A couple of them just watching your suit to make sure nothing's leaking and others helping deliver tools or just work logistics. They all need to watch their time underwater, just like any scuba diver and be careful and slow about coming up and down. Um, you're inside the, the spacesuit and there's some air pressure on you and you're breathing a, a pretty normal mix of things. So there's a, yes, you do still have to be careful, but it's a little bit cushioned for the, for the spacewalkers, but you're, you've got the flight surgeons or doctors always there watching times and paying attention and making sure that people don't get so absorbed in the work they stay too long or that mm. they surface too quickly. Uh, yeah, you have to keep an eye on the safety factors all the time.
0: And then what about, like, I would—I was just imagining, like, on all the practices where you're, like, doing the rough sketches of, you know, the outline of how you think it's going to work, and then you're down in this pool, and you've been, like – mathematizing and mathematizing and like doing it and figuring it out. And then you get down there. What happens when you realize that like, I need this other tool or like this didn't go right. Would you ever be like, dang it. Like now we have to go up and like rework this. Cause this didn't work. And I forgot the thing. And like, would you get frustrated? Like if something didn't go right. Cause like I would imagine it's really frustrating. Yeah.
1: Well, but that's the whole purpose of the tank work is that's where you want to find that thing out. And so, yeah, let's follow your scenario. You get all the way back to where you're supposed to work and and you realize, oh, I I, I brought a socket wrench with an eight inch extension, and this thing's further away. I need a twenty four inch. In the water tank, you would say, "Ah, my bad. I should have brought the twenty four inch extension." One of the utility dri- divers bring it to me, and someone on Ooh. scuba would bring it in, so you could you could carry on and someone in the on the tech on the engineering console who's tracking and monitoring all this and which would include the engineers that are helping train you they would note down they're following through the checklist and they would make the note and then uh, that all right needs to be 24 not 8 um, and when the test is done everyone sits down together and goes through What did we learn? What did we miss? I didn't think this would happen. So I was surprised when I got there and so and so. Well, okay, let's make a note in the checklist and and remind ourselves about that so that when we get into orbit and we're doing it for real, I I don't want to be surprised by things that can prevent us getting the job done. There's going to be wonderful things to be surprised about and, and enjoy. That will be novel and and exciting, but you don't want to find some surprise that means you're stuck and you can't get the job done because there's no utility divers once you're doing the real spacewalk. If you forgot it, if it doesn't fit, end of mission. And you you just don't want that to happen.
0: Has that ever happened? Or another thing I wondered is like, has anyone ever like been in the middle of a, like when you were like going to unclip something to then, then use it or like, has a tool ever slipped out of someone's hand and then you're just watching it float away? Like, please don't hit a, like, please don't hit the thing. It's like, don't hit the thing. And then it's like, and then it's Houston going like, oh my God, it's good. Like, has that ever happened? Or they would never say, oh my God, like when you're up there.
1: Yeah. They're probably more cool and composed than that, but uh, it has happened. There have been a couple of incidents. There was one space station spacewalk that, remember, I talked about a tool caddy that might carry several tools and takes one clip, but it carries several tools. Uh, One of those got away from an astronaut. I I don't know, know quite what was going on, but lost track of it or it wasn't clipped in, and then they noticed it drifting away. And it was partway through a very complex spacewalk on the space station. Happily, the way that spacewalk had been designed and the choreography, the cooperation between the two spacewalkers, between them they had still enough tools to get the whole job done. So one small batch of tools went drifting away. Uh, uh, Some engineers are going to start tracking that right away to be sure you know if it's becoming a hazard and might bump into the station. But the spacewalkers, uh, they don't worry about that. They can't do anything about it. They just focus on, well, we need three wrenches to continue and get this done. Between us, do we have the right three wrenches? And happily, the answer in that case was yes. And so it it did not end up affecting the uh, success of the spacewalk.
0: And then what would happen if, like, that box of tools, like, floating around? Like, does NASA get, like, back to the space debris thing? Like, is there, like, a list of, like, high-risk satellites or, like, high-risk stuff that's threatening our satellites or something? Or do you not have to worry about something that small?
1: Oh, you need to worry about something that small. Um, you need to worry about you know something the size of a blueberry in, in orbit is doing 17,500 miles an hour. If you got hit by a blueberry in orbit, you would feel like someone dropped an anvil on you. I mean, it's, it's a lot of energy. Uh, so, yeah, something the size of a, a, even a single tool um, could be a real problem. Uh, and there's a... Um, there's a, the, the United States has a group that tracks probably 16 or 20,000 known objects that are in space. Uh, and there are different radars around the planet that can measure those go, those pieces and satellites going through and calculate what orbit they're in. So you, you can know where those 16 or 20,000 objects are, and you can calculate whether their orbit is going to come too close to you. Uh, and so that's I'm sure what happened with that tool bag is they, NASA would have alerted that group that does the tracking, you know, keep an eye on this, let us know, send us the math data so we can check and see if it's likely to recontact the space station. And if you calculated that it might recontact the space station, you would make a slight adjustment in the altitude of the station to Mm. widen out that missed distance.
0: How many uh, flights did you end up going on?
1: I did three shuttle flights.
0: That is a lot of flights. And so (laughs) coming back, what is that like? Like, I mean, like what's the descent?
1: Yeah, it's um, so, you know, it it takes eight and a half minutes to get into orbit, which are explosive, intense, you know, rocket, rocket engine intense. Uh, And that's what accelerates you to 17,500 miles an hour. So obviously, coming home boils down to slow down uh, on the space shuttle. And one of the, tr- but one of the tricks of orbits is if I, if I want to land here at this point on the Earth, the place I want to slow down is halfway around the Earth away from that. That's just how orbits work. I, I, I want to. I'm going to slow down. That means I'm going to lower the height of my orbit. I'm going to lower it so that it.
0: Well, So you have to stop half the orbit 40, like 45 minutes before, like 45 minutes.
1: That's right. You have, you have to do your slowdown, your deorbit burn halfway around the world from where you want to land. Wow. So, and for much of that 45 minutes or so, you're still from an astronaut point of view, you're still in zero gravity. You're still a free fall. You're just falling towards the atmosphere. Um, Now you're falling at an angle that's going to put you in the atmosphere And so you've got, I don't know, much of that time, it's just still free fall. Then you start to feel the drag of the atmosphere affecting the cabin. I remember feeling that because, you know, the atmosphere is acting on the outside of the shuttle. My seat is bolted to the shuttle. I'm strapped to my seat. And so all of that, that's how all that slowdown, you know, gets transmitted. But oddly... You know, my eyes were the last thing to realize that we were going to slow down. I remember feeling just dimly aware of my eyes pressing against the inside of the eye socket because my skeleton is slowing down all the soft organs in my body. And that was one of the most interesting sensations was realizing my eyeballs were the last things to slow down.
0: (laughs) Wait, so you're in the, you're in the shuttle and it's how many of you were up on that one?
1: uh my flights were two of my flights had seven people aboard and one had five
0: so is this the first one that you're coming back into that you're talking yeah. about yeah. So, and that's the one where you did the the walk you did your walk yeah. on your first one and so you're in the thing and you're strapped to your chair which is strapped to, did you get hot was it hot is it like no, a hollow it's, fort it it's all
1: it's it's blast furnace hot outside Uh, But it's not blast furnace hot inside. There are steps you take to make sure the shuttle is very, very cold before you come back. Uh, And the shuttle sheds a lot of that heat. So a lot of heat never even tries to get in. And then you've made the inside super cold.
0: And so you're, does it feel like you're descending on a plane or does it feel like you're, what does it feel like when you say that you could feel your eye socket, your eyes pressing into your eye sockets? What did the rest of your body feel like on the soft? Like what? Can you say that again in a different way? Because I want to understand it more.
1: <laughs> so you're you're sitting for in the shuttle. You're sitting in something that resembles an airline seat, and so the experience is a bit like descending in an airliner. It's pointy and it's going forward, all all those good things. Um, and when you when the vehicle starts to hit the atmosphere, you know it's the atmosphere is, is slowing the airplane down, like. You know, it's know, like, it's like a rock hitting the water. So the atmosphere is acting on the outside of the shuttle. And your seat is bolted to the shuttle, so, you know, your seat will slow down. And you're strapped into your seat, so your body is slowing down. But there, I had this interesting experience on uh, my first flight of kind of realizing my seatbelt actually is holding my skeleton in place, you can feel the straps, shoulder straps on your rib cage for, for, and shoulder blades. And the soft the soft organs of my body are going to be restrained by the skeleton. And I became aware of that because I could feel just a little bit of pressure where my eye, the, the soft eyeball, was still going slightly faster than the skeleton. And I, I used never feel, whoever feels pressure of their eyes trying to sort of outward and it was not big and it was not like oh my god my eyes are gonna pop out but it was sort of what are you ever aware of pressure around the rim of your eye outward pressure and it was just a fascinating sensation
0: is there turbulence
1: there's virtually no turbulence in a shuttle landing it's just a you know progressive deceleration slowly you feel the force of gravity but but first you feel the fact what you feel first is the deceleration, is the slowing down, just like in a car. If you someone hits the brake, you, you go forward like that a little bit into your seatbelt. Well, y- your body is still trying to go forward while the seatbelt uh, is is holding you back uh, with the shuttle, uh, with the, the shuttle decelerating. Um, there, around t- Mach 12, 12 times the speed of sound, uh, the shuttle would hit a. A little region of the atmosphere, we'd have just a, a burst of turbulence. It felt kind of like going over a, a railroad crossing, just very short, very stiff, and then it was just back into a glide, smooth glide. Then a
0: parachute comes out, right? Or-
1: With the shuttle in in my era, the shuttle just came in like a like an airplane. It much, did, oh my, yeah, uh huh, yeah, much steeper and much faster than a jetliner, but basically like an airplane, uh, and it was a glider, so you've got to be precise on making the runway because you don't have engines to add some power and just things. So you're a big, chunky glider. Uh, and it would land, you know, just land on the back two wheels and slowly let the nose down and roll out on the runway later on. But none of this, this didn't come about while I was still flying, but uh, NASA did later add a drag chute. So once the shuttle had landed like an airplane, uh, you pop the parachute out the back tail, just like a drag racer when it's trying to slow down. And that would just help slow the shuttle down, save some wear and tear on the brakes, things like that. And then,
0: but in this, like, I can't, what Apollo was it in the movie? What, I can't, what? Apollo 13. Yes. Yeah, so um, those ones, they, the, that little capsule came out in the ocean, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. The Mercury, Gemini and Apollo did, did well, the reentry process was the same. You have to slow down halfway around the earth from where you want to land. Uh, they came in a bit a little bit steeper uh, and when they got to when they got through all the hot part of the atmosphere and sort of down into the normal place where airplanes fly, then they popped three parachutes out the top of the capsule. The capsule is now suspended like a teardrop underneath the parachute and they would land in the ocean. And the, the Dragon capsule that took uh, Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken up to the space station back in May, uh, that's going to come back to Earth. They're going to leave the station tomorrow and come back to Earth. And they that's also going to be a water landing. So that's going to look like the Apollo landings.
0: Wow. interest. Okay, wait. One more question about um, – well, okay, two more. I accidentally, like, talked through all of the – Ocean part, but we're going to get there really quick. But I just have so many questions about space; I can't help it. So, (laughs) you said that the fuel was like really toxic, highly. Is it like so? It's not. Is it like a literal different chemical than gasoline as we know it? It's like a whole other thing.
1: It's a whole other thing than gasoline as we know it. It's called hydrazine, monomethyl hydrazine, Uh, and it's just it's virtue for the for a rocket fuel is that it's got a lot of explosive oomph in small quantities. Um but it's also very toxic, very poisonous. So tiny bits of it.
0: What does it look like in a in a jug? Is it
1: it would clear? look like is a red it... it would look like a red liquid.
0: Red liquid. Interesting. Yeah. So was there ever a point where you were just like really nervous? Like before the spacewalk, like before the landing, is there ever like this one time I was flying from Perth to Sydney and there was the biggest drop in like altitude I've ever felt in my life. There was like a good fifteen minutes where I was like Holy shit! Like I really, it was like the scariest flight I've ever been on, which apparently is like common for that weather pattern down there. I never knew, but like, were you ever super nervous on any of your three? Was there, or just the most I mean, nervous?
1: Um, I mean, not nervous. Like I really thought we're losing it, and this is all going very bad. Um, you know, certainly a some, a mic, odd mixture of. What I was, I think, going in the spacewalk is a, an interesting mix of super focused and mildly anxious because now you're doing it for real. Now it's not the water tank, uh, and it's it's like you know it's on stage. This is the this is the final take, uh, and you care about getting the work done. The engineers that have put all that work into it, the purpose, the reason, the money—that's all in your hands now. So you know, do right by that, and your your own reputation, your opportunity to fly again. You want it, you know. You want to do well. I'm certainly wired that way. Probably all astronauts are wired that way. Uh, but very familiar. That's a pretty familiar thing for me by the time I get there. I mean, I've been, I've been out at sea on research ships. Uh, which are, the stakes are not going to be, they don't evolve as rapidly as they do flying around the Earth in a spaceship. But, you know, same kind of thing. It's You're there. You're responsible for something. There's a purpose involved that's important to you and to your own future. Uh, and A lot is in your hands, a lot of responsibility, and you, you feel that. I didn't, But I didn't feel that in a hand-wringing, oh, my goodness, oh, my gosh way. I felt that in sort of a you know, focus and let's go way.
0: So the movie Gravity, how accurate was all that? Like especially the part when that one astronaut like got out of the space station, and it was like the part where I like had to turn my head away because I feel like their head just turned into like a hole or something. It was like a very intense, that wouldn't really happen, or would it?
1: Um, I don't remember that exact scene, but uh, I let me say this about Gravity: the visuals were great. Uh, I mean, pretty, pretty nicely done. Um, none of the physics was right. Mm-hmm. So you remember the scene where um, she's trying to reel Clooney back in, and mm-hmm. like finger fingertip apart, and suddenly he sort of drifts suddenly he starts moving away from him. she could have reeled him in with one fiber of human hair.
0: Oh uh, because of gravity? There's, like
1: Because because they're both weightless and there was not anything propelling him away. So just slowly, gently, literally on one fiber of human hair, could have pulled him back in. Uh if if he really wanted to disappear and leave her, he would have to push off and propel himself away. Um you know, there's, it starts out working on the Hubble, then they pop over to the International Space Station, then they pop over to the Chinese Space Station. Those are all in such different orbits. It's, it, it's, it's not poetic license. It's just flat, physically impossible to do that. It, if, I saw, if I said to you, I took my boat out on San Francisco Bay and it began to sink, so I walked to the moon. That sentence is just as feasible as that scenario in Gravity. It's impossible.
0: Ah, I'm obsessed with you. I mean, I already was, but I love that little thing. Okay. <laughs> We're going to take a really quick break, and then we'll be right back with more Kathy Sullivan after this. Hey. Okay, welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have Kathy Sullivan. So you come back from your last flying mission, and at what point do you get the opportunity to just casually go to the deepest part of the ocean known to man?
1: Yeah, that was a delightful surprise. Um, I had been following Victor Vescovo, who built the, the world's first reusable, repeatable, go-anywhere-in-the-ocean submersible. And I watched him or followed the work as he did his five deeps expedition in 2019. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, and then out totally out of the blue, in late 2019, uh, I get an email from him. He's uh, planned expeditions for 2020. He's going to go back to the Challenger Deep in the Marianas Trench. And he's decided that one thing he'd like to do on the 2020 expeditions is uh, take the first woman down to the Challenger Deep. It's time. It's, you know, this is crazy. I mean, there's only been seven seven people down there at, at the point that he's emailing me. Uh, and he thinks it's time. And he thinks that should be me. Um, he says he talked to a lot of people as he was considering, you know, who, who would you invite if you were going to do that? And my name kept coming up. So evidently, that's how that happened. Um, and needless to say, I said yes.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. So just so if anyone doesn't know, the Challenger Deep is?
1: So the Challenger Deep is in what's called the Ring of Fire, which is these these sort of festoon of super deep trenches that ring the Pacific Ocean from off the coast of Peru and Chile, off Cal- uh, Central America, Washington, Oregon, the Aleutians, Japan, all the way around and down to, to the Philippines. Um, this is the Marianas Trench lies east of Guam. That's the big island in the Marianas. And the Challenger Deep, It's and these are all arc-shaped, so they're curved. And the Challenger Deep is at the sort of bottom southwest uh, tip of the Marianas Trench, and it's just this extra deep part of the trench. Uh, what do I mean when I say extra deep? Um, the whole—I mean, eleven kilometers. I mean, thir- essentially thirty-six thousand feet deep. Um,
0: that's like as high as like most flights. That's higher than most flights fly. Yeah, or like it's like are, it's like the same high dish.
1: It's the same like, it's high like dish. A, if yeah. you're on a, if you're on a transcontinental flight across the U.S. or you know Tokyo to Chicago or something, you're probably flying around thirty five between thirty five and thirty seven thousand feet.
0: So, is the Challenger deep? Like, is it always down there?
1: So it's it's a trench. So that, think of it as a slit in the ocean floor, a, a curved shaped slit in the ocean floor. And so it has it has side walls. It's a, it's very it's a pretty narrow zone that that is that deep. Um, it's a, it's
0: but it's a not like a man-made, ge- it's not like a man-made, like, you know, like no. international space station in the ocean. No, it's just like an area. No,
1: it, it's, a, it's a big geological feature. It, and it, why does it exist? It exists because the, the floor of the Pacific Ocean is moving west, northwest, and it's getting pushed under the Asian plate. So where those two plates collide, they buckle down, and that makes the deep, like the crease of a fold – uh, and so it's always there. It's a big geological feature, uh, and it's super deep.
0: So in 2020, you got to go to the deepest place on Earth?
1: I did. I got in a little two-person submersible called Limiting Factor with the owner and pilot, Victor Vescovo. It's kind of a cozy little cabin, a sort of a... Think, um, think economy, economy airline seat with the seatbelt sign on all the time, but you know, no obnoxious person in the row in front of you leaning their seat back. Uh, getting down there is a, a four-hour elevator ride. It's very smooth. It's very calm. We just chit-chatted and monitored the submarine systems and checked in with the surface on a regular basis. Uh, our plan was to spend four hours. On the bottom, basically doing a mapping survey, running a a transect and measuring the depths. Uh, We had an electrical problem come up about an hour and a half into that. So we surfaced sooner than we had planned. Uh, And it's another four-hour elevator ride back up to the surface.
0: Were you nervous about the electrical problem?
1: No, it was was pretty clear what it was. You know, you've got a lot of pressure trying to help every little molecule of seawater get into... All of the electronics, so it's, a, it's it's common on submersibles going this deep that you'll have little gremlins in the electrical system if there's the least bit of water getting in there, and the, the system's designed with fuses and circuit breakers so that are going to stop something becoming a big problem.
0: What's the shape of it? The shape of the thing that took you down.
1: the the shape The shape that matters in a submersible, like limiting factor, is a sphere because that's the the part you care most about. It's the pressure sphere, and ours was a about five-foot diameter titanium sphere with a wall thickness of about three and a half inches. So that's the shape it takes to resist all the pressure of the deep sea. You're going to be inside that shape. The next question is, well, then what do you put around that shape? In the case of limiting factor, it's basically a rectangular shape and that's as thick it's a little thicker than the sphere is wide, so it's about six feet thick uh, and from 10, 10 or 12 feet, um, horizontal and vertical. And that carries the, elec- the electrical stuff, the brackets for the weights that hold you down, uh, batteries, uh, the, comp- the computing stuff, and a lot of it, a lot of that is what's called syntactic foam. It's the buoyancy that's going to bring you back up to the surface. We think of styrofoam as being buoyant, but styrofoam is basically a little plastic and a lot of air. Mm. Uh, and if you took that down to depth, it would just get crushed and it would lose all the buoyancy, not be able to bring you back up. Syntactic foam is, is some, the simple way to think about it. It's sort of a, a super strong glass version of styrofoam that does yeah. not lose its buoyancy. So you can take it down. The pressure at the bottom of the Mariana Trench is 1,200 times the pressure that we're under here at sea level. It's 16,000 pounds per square inch. Oh, so it, It's eight tons per square inch, an elephant per square inch. So is there
0: a window? Like, or was there cameras that you were watching outside the...
1: Yeah, there are both cameras and windows. Uh, so this this submersible has three viewports. They look sort of out and down. Uh, and, uh, lots of cameras on the outside, several high definition cameras, and even one 4k camera. First time a 4k camera has gone to that depth.
0: Did you see any crazy animals on your way down or like, what was the coolest thing you saw down there?
1: Yeah, we were, we were not pausing on the way down to look for animals and we didn't want to spend our battery power on lights on the way down. So we just went straight Mm. down because our goal was mapping, not biology, We went straight down, and we were sort of cruising above the bottom, four to six feet off the bottom. So I saw plenty of signs of critters, you know, tracks on the bottom and little pockmarks and little mounds, almost like you would see at a seashore, that tell you there's critters living in the upper few inches of the sediment and, you know, hiding and feeding on that stuff. Um, And there's one kind of critter that we see down there that just – lives on the seafloor called a sea cucumber. You are little guys, Ooh. sort of lo- large potato size, I would say. Uh, and we saw a number of those scattered along the bottom. There, there are not fish or octopus, the kind of normal critters we think about in the ocean. They don't come anywhere near this deep. We were, we were several kilometers, probably a mile, at least a mile deeper than they would be.
0: Were the rocks just like rocky colored or was there any like interesting colored rocks?
1: Um, So, we didn't get to any rocks on my dive, but uh, the two dives later, they worked along the edge of the trench where you see some of the wall structure. Uh, and they were you know, a little bit drizzled with sediment, dark colored, drizzled with sediment. Clearly, I'm a geologist too, so clearly it was basalt, basalted kinds of rocks. You could tell that from some of the shapes. Uh, and in some cases, they saw this interesting uh, golden orange encrustation on it, which is probably signs of some chemosynthetic life. So, some sort of algae or bacterium that doesn't get its energy by converting sunlight into energy, it works off of chemical reactions in the deep, dark, cold.
0: I'm going to have to have you on again to talk about if I could ever get more of your time to talk about ocean stuff and talk about rocks because it's interesting. I know we only have a few minutes left. And one of the things I wanted to ask in the third part of the interview before I accidentally spent 55 minutes talking about space (laughs) because it was so interesting I couldn't get it together is some of the research that I got to do on you uh, before is is I learned that your dad was an aerospace engineer. And I I have this annoying habit where I compare everything to gymnastics and figure skating because I don't know what's wrong with me, but I do. And (laughs) one thing that I've noticed in that sport is that... Like so many people that get to that elite level either had a parent who was willing to like, that already knew about the sport a little bit or knew what it took for that child to go that distance. And I feel like the distances that you've gone in your profession are extreme. They are the highs of the highs Um, and even the lows of the lows are the highs of the highs. So, and I mean you're the you're a boundary breaker, you are a trailblazer. And so for young women and also specifically young women of color, um, people that have not had the opportunities that you have had, with what you've learned to get to where you've gone, if there is any young people who are interested in science or interested in space, interested in geology, oceanography, what do they need? To know,
1: I think what's powered me uh, through all of that have been, I would say three things: an endless, wide-ranging curiosity, uh, and uh, the spirit of the adventure. I'm someone who sort of, oh, I want to try that. Oh, I want, you know, ooh, I wonder, and sort of a lean in, um, and sort of an active wondering, uh, which is kind of what adventure is in a sense. Um, and then you know, hard hard work and stick to itiveness, some grit. Uh, my, I definitely. I mean, neither of my parents want the kind of route that I went, but what they did to enable and and set me up to be able to do that is always fed my curiosity. Never put any stereotype boundaries on me. I, as a very little girl, was interested in all sorts of things that "quote unquote" normal little girls or little girls typically don't do never once got a signal from either of my parents of you should be doing something else. Um, both both of my parents were equally invested in both me and my brother. So I would get alone time and adventure time with my dad and he would get it with my mom and vice versa. Uh, and, you know, it, they also never bounded us by them. So I, I never heard, if I came if I came home from school with a bad grade in something, which you know I was too eager and keen, that rarely happened. But if I did, I never got like, oh, don't worry, dear. Mommy wasn't any good at math either. I never got the sort of permission to bail out. Uh, in our family, it was recognized we all have, or the ethos was, yes, we all have some innate talents and abilities that we're, we're, we're better at more easily. But Other skills and attributes are actually muscles you can build and grow. They're not, it's not like you either got it or you don't. Uh, You can grow these things. And so we sort of build on your strengths, shore up your weaknesses, make those muscles stronger, uh, and and don't let anybody edit what you're interested in. No one gets to tell you what you're interested in or that you shouldn't be interested in. Um, And then the final thing that my parents did is, uh, and again, I can see this as I look back to very, very early ages. Uh, they let us be part of all sorts of decisions in in small and modest ways, but ways that were showing us and letting us learn and feel. This is how you figure out something you didn't expect. This is how you deal with something you've never encountered before. Uh, it doesn't have to be run to mom, and it doesn't have to be just stop. Be, well, let's think about this. Well, I'll bet we can figure this out. So it was this well, come on, we can figure this out and you'd build an answer to it. And they let us be a part of that and and take responsibility for pieces of it uh, at a very early age. When, you know, small scale, low stakes, but we felt very big. It, it felt like a big thing to get to do that. And that's, I think, how we learned, how I learned, A, learned how to do it and gained confidence that I, I, I know how to figure, I can figure something out. Okay, I'll, I'll try it. And that confidence... If you let it build with smaller to bigger to bigger to bigger experiences, uh, that's, you know, that's been a a central element uh, of my success and my ability to take on these fun challenges.
0: Kathy Sullivan, I'm so grateful to you and for your time and for coming on the show. You wrote a book, Handprints on Hubble. So if anyone can get out there and order that book, order it, read it, um, I'm just so grateful for you and and for sharing your time and your experience with us. And I really want to have you back to talk about more ocean floor stuff and geology stuff.
1: Oh, I'd love that, Jonathan. It's been great fun talking to you.
0: You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was geologist, astronaut, and oceanographer, Kathy Sullivan. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Emily Bosick, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobs and Colin Anderson with associate production by Alex Murphy.